Amen. Thanks, Matt. I, I pray that uh, as we just sung, that he would leadeth me as well as he leads us in, God, in, in his word this morning through this passage of John 11. Uh, if you haven't turned there, let me encourage you to do, do so, to read the conclusion of this story of Lazarus. And, and as I uh, begin to get into that story, uh, I want you to have the idea of a substitute in, in your mind. And, and some of you that are teachers, um, uh, this may resonate, it may be close to you as well. And as a kid, I don't know about you, but some of us remember in high school, getting a substitute was like amazing. And it, it was kind of a gamble though, wasn't it? I mean, you could get that substitute that was like even more strict than your teacher and all of the lessons that the teacher left behind, they actually did them and even more so and just even more rudely and all of that kind of stuff. But then there were some of those substitutes who, yeah, the teacher left some lesson plans behind but in reality, watching a movie would be a whole lot easier and fun. And, and so they, you know, those certain substitutes, you know, it was just kind of uh, like putting a person in place so that the kids didn't kill one another. Uh, essentially, and you teachers and principals are kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the thing. And did you not hear the text that was read? Like the council that we're reading about, they gathered together and said it would be better for one to die than the, the people die. And this is, in fact, a, a silly idea, but, but one in which we get our understanding of, of substitute in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ became our substitute. And, and when we think of a substitute in a, in a class situation. It's, it's someone who stands in the place of, uh, someone who uh, takes the responsibility of uh, another who is, is not there. And that happens in the classroom, but it, it happens most beautifully in Jesus Christ and Jesus taking our place. Jesus becoming our substitute. Jesus dying and, and, and serving in our place, bearing the weight of our sins. And this text, while we're not even to the cross and the resurrection yet, it, it hints at that. It points us towards that. And it shows us that Jesus is going to be like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, that he's going to die in, in the place of those. And so there is, there is good news in these, what seem like just simple responses to what happened earlier in John chapter 11. In John 11, uh, up to this point, Jesus performed his greatest uh, earthly sign uh, that John records proving that he is who he said that he was. Seven signs in the Gospel of John, all proving that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah, the, the one that the Jews had been waiting for, the Christ, uh, and, and would become the Savior of the world through his death and his resurrection. And it was John's hope in writing um, this 
these signs and all of the other signs and this ultimate sign that people would believe. That was his hope. That was his goal. We, saw that, we see that in John chapter 20, that he wrote these signs so that you might believe and have life in his name. That's why Jesus did these signs, so that, so that they might believe, so that we might believe. That's why John wrote these signs. That's why we're spending time preaching this gospel, so that you might believe. This is why we send you out from this church, Christian and member, with this story on your mind this week to not only be encouraged yourself that Jesus is your substitute, um, but to share that good news with others that they too might believe. This story is uh, on the heels of Lazarus being raised from the dead, that greatest sign. And in fact, many did believe. Many did believe. When they saw um, Lazarus, whom they saw buried four days previous, when they saw those people roll that stone away and Lazarus come out looking much like um, people will uh, be dressed or, or those characters are dressed in people's yards already as mummies with cloths wrapped all around them and stuff like that. Lazarus literally coming out looking Halloween-ish and Jesus saying to them, unbind him. Let him go. Them taking the cloths off of him, there were some there that in that moment they could not help but believe. Having heard the truths of, uh, that Jesus was proclaiming up to that point, having seen sign after sign after sign, at this point it was just like, how could I not believe that Jesus really is the Son, uh, the Son of God? And this story uh, following is just full of, of irony. It's full of um, ironic events. It's full of ironic um, sayings of individuals. Um, and, and when I say irony, I'm not simply meaning sarcastic, um, nor am I meaning what the song of a previous generation talked uh, about it when, when rain falls on your wedding day. I'm talking more so about um, uh, this. This definition gets at it well. Uh, a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. So what these characters do and what they say, they do not realize that they are a part of a way bigger plan. A plan of God, a so the sovereign will of God, that God is going to use their, what they think are individual actions and words, He's going to use them to bring about His own plans and His own purposes for the salvation of, of all of his lost sheep. And that's good news. So, when you're taking notes uh, this morning, I, I ultimately want us to really understand and, and believe what, what Caiaphas said is actually true. That it really is better that one man should die for the people. What, what Caiaphas says you need to believe is true. It is good. It is good. 
because what Caiaphas didn't realize is that that one person, Jesus, would not just die physically so that the Jews would be saved physically, but Jesus died physically so that we might live spiritually with Him. It really is good news that one man should die as a substitute in our place for the people. And so note this in the first couple of verses, the irony first and foremost of the contrasting perspectives of the crowd. The irony of the contrasting perspectives of the cloud, crowd. I've already hinted at it uh, already, but, but look at it in verse 45. This was our transition verse from a couple weeks ago. Verse 45, in response to Lazarus coming out, being unbound and letting him go, John, the author of this gospel, a disciple of Jesus, inspired by God Himself to write these things down, he notes for us that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. Many. Many. And this is a description of part of the crowd that we see in several of the stories in the Gospel of John, that oftentimes there are many who come to faith in Jesus because of the teaching of Jesus. Later on, the teaching of the apostles. There are many that come to faith because of the signs that prove Jesus' teaching um, in the Gospel, or the signs even of the apostles that prove that their teaching was the same teaching as Christ's teaching. Not all. Not all, John's clear to point out that it's not all saw that. And isn't that amazing? I mean, it just blows me away that not everyone in that moment, even in their human state, wouldn't just leap at the opportunity to believe in Jesus. But many did. Uh, Many believed in Him uh, at, at that moment, but not all. And so we see this contrast, not only here, but we see this contrast throughout the Gospels. You see this contrast throughout the book of Acts. Some believe and others don't. Christian, when you are sent out from this place to take this good news of Jesus, our substitute, and share it with others, some may believe, but not all. There will be many who will and many who won't. You're not to be discouraged by that. For if that was the response that Jesus got at raising his friend, a dead man, Lazarus, from the grave, why would we not expect that same type of response uh, when we simply take that good news to others? There will be some who who will believe, but some of them, in their unbelief, Uh, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done rather than falling down in awe and worshiping Jesus in that moment. They ran away to tattle. They ran away to find somebody who could do something about it. That they saw this as the, uh, rather than seeing it as the ultimate climatic sign proving that Jesus was the Son of God, they saw this as the ultimate climatic um, 
uh, thing to get Jesus in trouble for and prove him that he was blasphemous and, and to raise up the, this, these leaders to be able to arrest him. This was the, um, the, the final straw on the camel's back, if you will. They thought they had him at this, and so they went, they went to get him. We see the, this contrasting um, perspectives of, of the crowd, and it's interesting that when John records this, he, he jumps immediately to these perspectives rather than giving us any other information about Lazarus. I mean, wouldn't you love to know? Like, what was his first meal? Like, after he came out of the tomb, wouldn't you love to know what his life was like after that? Um, you know, like, w- what did he experience? Um, like, nowadays you'll find people who claim that they died, went to heaven, and they came back to write a book about it. Do you notice that when that actually happened in history in front of the Son of God, not even Lazarus gets really any more mention except for like one or two mentions. Being at a dinner in chapter 12 and being tried to be killed because people are believing that he's walking around. That's all he gets later after this. You, you don't hear Lazarus' story. Why? Because Lazarus is not the point. The point is that Jesus is the Son of God, and he has the, the power to raise people from the dead, and he has the power to uh, forgive people of their sins and offer life to uh, those who believe in him. And so the focus does not go on to Lazarus at that point. The focus goes on to what people's response were to Jesus, belief or unbelief. And again, let me encourage you, as you go out from this place, let not the attention be on you uh, and who you are and, and what your life has been like. Let the attention be on Christ. Tell the world around you what Christ has done for you. Lift high Jesus and His work on the cross and the, the resurrection and that empty tomb. Um, not, not just how your life is, is different because of, because of Jesus. Um, in hopes, though, that some would believe, knowing that all will not believe, but many will, and, and there will be many who won't. And we need to consider uh, what, is, uh, what is our perspective towards this Christ? Have you put your faith in Him? Uh, or are you uh, just, just okay with it? Just, this is just another story in God's Word? Are you regularly, consistently falling down in worship in awe of who He is? Or just, eh, it's just another story? Are you believing and walking in obedience to Him and dying to know more about Him and treasuring God's Word or are you just going about your normal life as these unbelievers did? They had been trying to catch Jesus up to this point over and over and over. And they finally thought they had Him. Ask your, the people that you talk with, what is their response to who Christ is? Belief or unbelief? 
We have to consider that. And the ironic thing is in this is that God would use their unbelief and their actions of going to tell the Pharisees to bring about His ultimate plan of salvation for the others in this group, those who believed. God's going to use it. They think they're in control and they're going to go and bring about the plan to arrest Jesus, but God is going to use that. Uh, to bring about the salvation of those on the other side of the coin who believed. That's the irony there. But then after John describes this ironic, contrasting perspectives of the crowd, he then lays out the ironic, cowering proposals of the council. The ironic, cowering, or you might say fearful proposals of the council. This is seen in 47 through 50, where the, it said after the, the crowd had gone to the Pharisees, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. And the council would have been a, a group of like 70 um, religious leaders. The Pharisees themselves had no judicial, uh, executive, legislative powers in and of themselves. They couldn't really do anything about Jesus themselves, but some of them were a part of a larger group called the council or the Sanhedrin, and that Sanhedrin could do something about it. The Sanhedrin was, it's not something that's really mentioned in the Old Testament, but something that was probably developed between the Old in the New Testaments in that intertestamental period where this council of 70 that included some Pharisees but a majority of Sadducees uh, as well as priests and ultimately the chief priest where this group would be able to uh, be both the judicial, legislative, and executive branch all wrapped into one. Another reason why we have them separated, a balance of powers here in America. This group took them all under one, and, and they would act so that the Roman authorities who were above them wouldn't act. You see, so these, this council is coming together to try to handle Jewish affairs on their own so that it doesn't become known, I know, it, so it doesn't get become known by the Roman authorities and they start uh, doing something about it. And, and so this council gathers together. Uh, the Pharisees bring them together and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. It, I mean, it couldn't be denied that Jesus was performing these signs. They had to acknowledge that before this group. This man is doing many signs. We just saw him raise a man that was buried four days earlier. He's doing all of these many signs. What are we to do? And in 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Can you hear the fear in their response? They're cowering at what might happen. 
They were there that day. They saw many fall down and worship Jesus on that hillside in front of the, the tomb. And they run away to say, what are we to do if we let this keep going on many more? In fact, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Roman authorities will rise up and they're going to take away our place, i.e. the temple, and our nation, our identity as Jews. They're going to take away these things from us because um, they're going to see this as a, a lack of control. They're going to see this, and not only that, but these leaders are going to see, they're trying to fight against that and trying to do something about it because they don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their position of authority. They don't want the Romans to usurp their Jewish rule at this time. So they're trying to save face. They are fearful that uh, the Romans will take away their place and their nation, that they'll lose their power and their authority. And so the council, their cowering proposal is, is what are we to do? Funny thing is, is that later in the story of the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 16, a similar question is asked of Peter and John when they stand before the council and it says, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. This, the book of Acts is the continuing work of God through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles. The continuing proclamation of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It's the continuing of that work. And a very similar question is asked of them that was asked of, of Jesus uh, in this place. And so Caiaphas comes against that. The council is, just really doesn't know what to do. They're cowering. They're fearful. They're afraid in this moment. And so Caiaphas um, uh, steps in and speaks. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, note, that year... Uh, John is going to point out the fact that, that he, was, he was the high priest that year, the, the year that this happened. Um, high priests in the Old Testament were high priests for life. Uh, but up to this point, or, or at this point in history, high priests ruled as long as they were fit. Um, Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas' father-in-law was high priest, and no longer at this point. Uh, even though he still has influence, um, Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, is now high priest uh, this year and will be high priest when Jesus dies, uh, not too much further in the story. Will be the high priest later when Stephen uh, is, is questioned himself. And so Caiaphas speaks up uh, and, and says to them, you idiots, I mean, not really, but that's essentially what he's saying. He's like, you know nothing at all. Isn't that the definition of idiot? You, you, don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas 
sees the problem as the leader of this council of 70. He, he says, you don't, know, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't you realize that if we kill him, then the Romans won't take away our place, our temple. They won't take away our nation, our identity as a people. And so Caiaphas' proposal, uh, in fear of losing his own place as high priest that year, he's got re-election coming up, right? You, you know what happens when re-election's coming up. He knows that he's got to do something about that. So he'd rather put one to death rather than him lose his place as high priest that year or the next year. And so he puts forward this, this proposal to be able to, uh, to protect themselves. And the reality is, is that this is what the world is going to, has been doing since the beginning of time. It was obviously doing during Jesus' time. And, and Christian church, it's going to be what continues to happen in our day and age as well. And lest we as Christians just simply look out at the world and, and look down upon them and um, judge them, you too did these things and would be doing these things were it not for the grace of God. So please, please hear me when I say that. Uh, as Christians, we don't have to make fearful, cowering proposals to protect our place or our identity. Jesus has done that for us. But the world is still doing this against Christ and against Christ's church, the bride. Um, people that do not want their place or their identity taken from them um, are going to attack those uh, who they see as threats. People who don't want their power or their authority on this earth and in this life are going to attempt to protect it and, and attack. And so you, in this day and age, saw Christ and his believers attacked with fearful proposals, cowering proposals to do away with them so that they could keep their nation and their temple. The same thing happens in the book of Acts, uh, they're trying to do away with the church. Uh, all the way up in, in Acts chapter 8, the, the persecution, the martyrdom of Stephen uh, enters in this season of persecution. And all of those who believed, these many who believed in this passage are then scattered around the world because they're being persecuted and, and killed for their faith because others are fearful that their temple, they're fearful that their nation and their identity is going to be taken from them. And Christians are, and, and churches are still being attacked by the world because they don't want um, their freedoms, uh, their, uh, their rights, they don't want um, their identities as they see it taken from them. And neither did we before God entered into our lives and opened our lives and opened our eyes and saved us. None of us liked it when our opportunities for sin and our identity 
identities and powers and freedoms were taken from us. Uh, we fought against that until we realized that our sin was against a holy and just and righteous God who will judge in the end and yet by grace offers us forgiveness and love uh, and forgiveness. We, we didn't like that and, and so we rebelled against it. And the world does the same thing. Um, when you go to work tomorrow, there are going to be people who question and eventually even attack your faith and attack your identity as a Christian. Religious freedom is being attacked in our nation by uh, people who disagree with us. This is, it may feel uncommon to us as Americans. This is not uncommon to Christian church history and to many of the Christians around the world. And so we need to be ready for that. Uh, and to be ready to persevere because we, can, we don't have to fear and fight back ourselves because we have one whom has already identified himself as the true and better place in John chapter 2. Jesus who said, I'm the true and better temple so that even when your temple is destroyed, I'll build it back up in, in three days. Jesus said that all who would come to him and believe in him, repenting of their sins, would be like uh, stones built on top of the chief cornerstone. They themselves being the very temple of God because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in them. We don't have to fear this place that we worship in, the YMCA being taken from us. Because even if it is taken from us, we as a people are the place of God. Wherever we go, the Lord goes with us. We don't have to fear that. We don't have to fear whether or not we hold to certain truths and doctrines as a church that we will be destroyed. For even if we are destroyed on this earth or our religious freedom removed, we will spend eternity with God forever in heaven with Him to worship Him and praise Him forever. And so while the world is making these cowering proposals against Christ and those who believe in Him. Christian, we need to be urged not to do the same thing. We don't have to live in fear. Uh, for no one can separate us from the love of God. Nobody can take His Holy Spirit, the gift that He has given us. We need to fear not the world, but we need to fear the Lord. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 45, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you, he says, whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus urges us and and the crowd that was listening that day and me in just simply reading Christ's words and attempting to warn you not to fear the people of this world, uh, people here on this earth, that yeah, they make and persecute you, even martyr you for your faith. Don't fear them though. Fear the one who, after taking your life from you, can cast you away from the very presence of God forever in hell but who also 
can welcome you in to spend eternity in the very presence of God in heaven with him forever. We need to have boldness and and courage to be able to stand strong in our faith in the midst of, uh, of evil proposals like this against us, much like Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael in the Old Testament, better known as Rack, Shack, and Benny, to those of you who grew up with Veggie Tales, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three, who, when threatening, being threatened with death with a fiery furnace, stood before Nebuchadnezzar and. Verse Daniel 3.16 and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But listen. But if not, even if He doesn't, God can deliver you, Christian. He can protect you in the midst of those proposals of school districts, uh, uh, proposals of government, proposals of your bosses, or, or threats of family and friends, or whatever it is. He can, but even if not, may we have the courage to be able to say like they, may it be known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, Be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let that be on our lips. That world, world, you can do whatever you want to me, but I worship Christ. I'm not going to bow down to anything else. Notice, though, the irony of what Caiaphas is saying. If, If you're considering... Uh, those words there as if they have double meaning. You're right, they do. John's going to explain that double meaning um, because after laying out those cowering proposals of the council and of Caiaphas, he begins to describe now the concealed prophecy of Caiaphas. We see that in 51 and 52, the concealed prophecy of, of Caiaphas. John pauses to explain uh, that what Caiaphas said is true on two levels. He says in 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Um, Caiaphas had his own plans in, in saying those words. And they were strictly horizontal earthly plans. Let me kill one man so that our place and our nation aren't taken away. Um, but God, not that God gave him those words to say um, speaking them into being, but God used those words of Caiaphas as a prophetic word that had double meaning, ironic meaning, if you will. Um, Caiaphas didn't mean to do it. He didn't have a vision of the Lord to say that or anything like that. It was selfish, sinful, evil, horizontal, uh, 
uh, on Caiaphas's part, but God used it and turned it to be used in a vertical manner, to be used in a divine manner, to bring about God's sovereign will. It's like what Joseph said to his brothers after they sold him into slavery, sinful, selfish, earthly um, slavery. Joseph looked to his brothers in Genesis 50 and said, what you meant for evil, you remember? God meant for good. What Caiaphas meant for evil in that statement, God meant for good. Not, not that it would be good for Jesus in the days ahead, because it wouldn't. It would mean uh, betrayal, denial, arrest, suffering, persecution, death, burial, but eventually, praise God, resurrection. It wouldn't necessarily mean good for, for Christ in the days ahead, but it would mean good for us. Amen? It, it would mean good for all of that crowd that believed that day. And so, there is in Caiaphas's evil, earthly, physical words, a hidden and concealed prophecy uh, of God through Caiaphas. Caiaphas's words have uh, a double meaning there, an ironic meaning, if you will. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And look at what, what John goes on to describe, not just for the nation. The nation is, is speaking, as the council used that word earlier, to speak of those who identified as Jews. Um, it's speaking of Israel there with that word. But John uh, understands that Christ came not just for Israel and not even all of ethnic Israel. He came for believing Israel. But he also came for all of those who would believe in the coming days. And so look how he describes that. Not only did Jesus die for the nation of Israel and those believing in Israel, in verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Jesus was coming to die to save people from every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language. He's still doing that to this very day. We are fruits of that last half of that verse. Jesus coming to die for us who are not a part of Israel, best I can tell. Um, he came to, to make a way for us to be forgiven and, and to be saved. And if we just look at some of the words that are used in, in this passage, note that these kinds of words are used throughout the rest of the New Testament. We've got people, uh, place, nation, a gathering, children of God. Do those sound familiar? All of those words are used to describe the church uh, in, the, in the New Testament later on. They're used to describe those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Uh, we as Christians are literally called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are gathered together into one as Christ's body. We are 
the place where His Spirit resides. We are a people. We who were not a people are now a people. We are children of God because we've been adopted into God's family. And so John is stepping back for just a moment in these verses after recording Caiaphas's words and the council's proposal. And he's kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit, if you will, before Jesus rips it from top to bottom when he dies and, and shows us this uh, even more clearly. John is, is trying to say Jesus is coming uh, to make a new people from all the peoples of the earth. And what Caiaphas meant for evil on an earthly level, God meant for good for all of his people throughout all the, all the world. It, it was hidden and concealed, but John, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving us insight. I mean, if we didn't have John's Holy Spirit-inspired explanation of Caiaphas's words in, uh, in 51 and 52, we might be able to elude that and, and kind of see later on that it had this double meaning. But we've been given this explanation of this concealed prophecy by John himself who lived in the midst of uh, this story, who lived in the midst of Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection, who is writing these things now, now to see a people gathered together later on in the first century to be the children of God, to worship, to represent Him here on this earth. And what a gift we've been given not only in Jesus making good on this prophecy and this promise, but John giving us insight into it. Um, another brother, another disciple, Peter, um, who was there at this moment, who was again there at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, who himself also wrote uh, to build up the early church, he uses these same types of words to encourage the church. First Peter chapter two verse nine. But you are a chosen race, right? A, a nation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so it's um, on the basis of the fact that our God used Caiaphas's evil words for good to bring this about. It's on the basis of um, what Jesus did in the crucifixion and resurrection that we are made into this with this new identity, that we are made to be this new people, that we are made to represent this new place, and, and being made into those things, being chosen for those things. Christian, church, you are sent out to proclaim. What does it say? You are sent out now to be able to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you 
out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You're not just to hold these things to yourself. We have to think about those who you're going to see this afternoon, that you're going to go to school with tomorrow, that you're going to work with later this week, that you're going to interact with on social media, that you're going to meet up with next weekend to hang out with. You've got to have those people on your mind for our Lord has them on on His mind. And He's revealed Himself to you. He's saved you, chosen you, and sent you out to proclaim these truths to the ends of the world. We need to, again, be in awe of that, be thankful for that, be thankful that we are a a part of that, that group that Jesus is gathering together into one, the children of God, and yet realize that there are still many more who have not been gathered in yet, Um, but that Jesus Himself uh, will bring them into that fold through our going out uh, and proclaiming the truth. And so lastly, finally, after explaining this concealed prophecy of Caiaphas, John then details the calculated plans of, of both the council, but most importantly of Christ. The calculated plans first of of the council, you see there in verse 53, that after Caiaphas said this, John records that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Uh, They were um, attempting to orchestrate the death of this one man so that they and all of those uh, among their council and among their nation wouldn't be destroyed. And they were doing everything they could uh, to bring about his death. And if I could just fast forward into the next chapter, it's not just Jesus that, that they have a problem with. It's Lazarus too. In fact, many believed because of what Jesus did that day, but John records later on in, in chapter 12, verse 10, that many others believed simply because Lazarus was walking and talking again. And so this same council is going to make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And they are attempting to make plans or calculating plans to be able to, to take Jesus out. Just note how ironic that really is. Their very plans to kill Jesus is what is going to be used by God to bring about the salvation of all who believe. God is using their evil for, to bring about His sovereign plans. But Jesus, on the other, has, I would say, even more calculated, even more intentional, more sovereign plans Uh, In 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus knew their plans, and he also knew it wasn't his time. It wasn't his hour yet. Um, Not too many days later, and it would be his day, it would be his hour, and he would willingly... Um, 
allow himself to be arrested. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, it was not his day. It was not his hour at this moment. But the time would come in, in days ahead when his day and his hour would come and he would gladly give up his life to save a people for himself. For his own namesake, for our good, uh, and for others' salvation as we take that good news to the world. Jesus really is uh, the greatest substitute. And when you consider this dying in the place of that, that Caiaphas evilly prophesies and, and proposes there before, one can't help but look forward to what Christ uh, will do. Obviously, he, he, will, he will die. He will be buried, and yet he will rise from the dead. One can't help but look backwards as well and think about how the high priest that year, way back in the past, Caiaphas that year, was to representatively offer an animal as a sacrifice and to take its blood and, and sprinkle it on, in the most holy place to be able to cleanse it. And then was to take another goat, another animal, and lay its hands on that animal, confessing the sins of all of the people of Israel on that goat, and then to take that goat and to send it out into the wilderness to be what was called the scapegoat. And Jesus is being foreshadowed here um, as not as both high priest, the great high priest, who will make an offering once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. He'll also be the Lamb of God who will shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he'll also be the scapegoat. He will die, uh, or he will have the sins of all of God's people placed on him uh, to bear them himself uh, in the midst of the wilderness. Jesus here is the ultimate substitute. And so I want you to realize that though Caiaphas didn't mean it in this way, his words really are true. That it really was good. And it really is good news for one to die in the place of the many. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your plan before the foundation of the world um, came to fruition in Jesus Christ. Even as you used the evil words of Caiaphas, the fearful proposals of the council, Lord, the unbelieving crowd to bring them about just shows your might and your power your commitment to bring about your plans uh, that you made before the foundation of the world. Jesus, thank you for willingly leaving perfect fellowship with, with God in heaven to wrap on flesh, 
uh, to live a perfect and sinless life that we couldn't live. And then to willingly uh, lay down your life and die on the cross as our substitute. To die in our place. To take our sins upon yourself. And for a moment, for the very first time in all eternity, uh, have the face of your Father turned away from you so that his face might be turned towards us. Jesus, thank you for um, being the great high priest, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the scapegoat that we might be called children of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get in on your plans for the salvation of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. That we wouldn't live simply to protect our plans or to protect even our church or to protect even our people. Lord, but we would live generously, sacrificially, um, um, missionally, Lord, going out to be the church in the world, to proclaim the excellencies of, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being willing to suffer uh, for you suffered for us. Uh, Lord, we know that we could only do that, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but in the power of your Holy Spirit, in the, in the power uh, uh, of the one whom you have sent to be with all who have believed. So Lord, strengthen us as we go out this week and we face an unbelieving crowd with evil, fearful proposals against us. Um, Lord, let us trust that even in our own life, what has meant evil against us, you can use for good for us and for your glory and for others' salvation, as you have done in history past. Lord, encourage us as your church this week. And I pray that by proclaiming your word, Lord, you would use that means that many, some, even one, might believe today and trust you, Jesus, as their substitute who died in their place. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.